Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on January 23, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. And earlier this month, Las Vegas hosted the 2010 International Consumer Electronics Show, the CES. ScientificAmerican.com reporter Larry Greenmeyer was there, and he recorded a few brief interviews with some of the exhibitors at the show. We'll play those a little later. But first... I owe it to my children to have the courage of my own convictions. My title will be On the Origin of Species. That's Paul Bettany, who plays Charles Darwin in the new movie Creation. This past week, correspondent John Pavlis caught up here in New York City with a couple of the people who brought Darwin's story to life in the film. I'm here to talk about the film Creation with the film's director. John Amiel, guilty of directing and uh, Randall, Randall Keynes. I'm author of the book that the film used for the plot. The book is called now called Creation, Darwin, His Daughter, and Human Evolution. What about Darwin is the film about? Um, the film takes Darwin uh, as a much younger man than I think we normally associate him with being. This is not the Darwin of the great bushy beard. This is a, a, a young man in the prime of his life. And it focuses on the year... Uh, really where he struggled hugely, virtually to the point of a nervous breakdown, to um, come to grips with writing Origin of Species. And it tells the story primarily through his relationship with his wife, who was a devout believer, and with his 10-year-old daughter, who was um, his pride and joy. And there's a twist in what John has just explained, which is that... Darwin's daughter had died eight years before this time when Darwin was writing the book. The film presents Annie, the the deceased daughter, as just, you know, almost kind of like a linchpin in Darwin's, you know, home and, and working life and in his whole career. Was she really that important in the creation of his his book and his decision to write it versus not write it? The film doesn't claim that Darwin wrote The Origin of Species because of Annie. Mm -hmm. Um, It presents her as a companion Mm -hmm. um, with whom Darwin can talk about certain things and through Darwin's link with whom we can see certain very important features of the story of his thinking and the difficulties he had in publishing it. Um, So she's a figure in the film, but her death is an important part of the plot and the drama, but in no sense an explanation of the origin of species. Yes, I mean, I think she's an emotional linchpin rather than a a necessarily intellectual, philosophical linchpin in, in, in that process. I think the film is full of the science that conceals science. In other words, if you're interested in Darwin's ideas, you will find an enormous uh, number of them embedded deeply in the fabric of this story, in the imagery, in the dialogue, in the dramatic confrontations, in sometimes the visual juxtapositions. For example, we dramatize some of Darwin's nightmares, the first segues from a picnic in, in a sunlit English meadow through um, 
via a, a, a rat climbing over a sheep skull, moves into a sheep skull where we see maggots growing, we see birds eating the maggots, we see uh, the fledgling of this bird fall from its nest and perish, only to be eaten by uh, beetles and, and, and worms and other things. A, a sequence like that not only um, goes to to Darwin's nightmares, in other words, what must it feel like as a naturalist who's used to seeing the young of various species perish in a routine way? How must it feel to, to, to now look at those events through the prism of having lost a child yourself? But it also dramatizes, you know, a, a central passage in, in Origin of Species, uh, where Darwin describes a meadow bank with birds flying around and butterflies and describes that as, in fact, a battleground where life is being created and destroyed on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. In the press materials, you said, Randall, that um, there were some parts of the film that you actually kind of appreciated in that they sort of took uh, the actual historical record of the facts as sort of a jumping-off point and kind yes. of went a, a bit yes. away from them. And um, I'm wondering why you felt that way. This was the strangest part of the making of the film for me, that um, I found that in the making of the film, they managed at a number of points to add points to the story. There are things for which there is no documentation, but the things that they added, I was glad to have added because they provided a picture for a truth about the story um, that I felt was very important. Uh, one of the wonderful things about working with Randolph in this was that, that, that he enfranchised us to do that and to explore things that neither a biographer or a historian can, is capable of doing, to actually go into the mind of the man, to say, how do you deal with the loss of a daughter when you are a naturalist? How do you deal with a relationship uh, with a, a, a woman you adore when you're so diametrically opposed in your view uh, of, of faith and religion? Why was it that Darwin became so violently ill during the writing of this? What must have been going through his mind at that time to have made him so physically um, sick and virtually bring him to the point of a nervous breakdown? So these things are the, fortunately, I think, the purview of, of a feature film. Paul Bettany, the star who plays Darwin, was telling us that um, he thinks that the film, if it has a message, it's one of tolerance, uh, if anything else, because it's about a man and a woman who, just like you said, are so differing in their ideas about how the world works and their own place in it, and yet they so clearly love each other and support each other and make a happy life together. And I'm wondering if uh, what each of you have to say about the, the what you'd like people to take away from this film, if anything. I think we may have offended staunch creationists and sort of members of the Darwin industry almost equally by portraying Darwin firstly as a human being, not a bearded demon, as the creationists would like to have us believe, but also as a very... A fragile human being and not the granite bastion of, of, of simple rational thought that, that the Darwin industry would somehow have you believe. 
I think that that in presenting him as a human being, both powerful, indomitable, and frail all at the same time, what we have done is is done an enormous service to the man himself. Um, and, and and secondly, hopefully, to have provoked thought and, and argument about him. So much of what one hears about Darwin in the media is sloganeering and completely unrelated to the man or, or, or the reality of who he was or and almost what he really thought. By humanizing him, I think we've done, in a sense, the most dangerous and provocative thing of all. And um, I, I hope that audiences will leave moved. My greater hope is they'll leave wanting to know a lot more about the man and his ideas. I would uh, just say that I agree very much that the central achievement of the film is to bring Darwin to life as a thinking, imagining, feeling, caring person. Then... I hope that people will be influenced from the film to recognise how all of those aspects of human life are important in the exercise of science. And I think we can get a better understanding of science, scientific achievement, what it is to be a scientist, if we recognise that scientists are not the cool, rational, objective yeah. determiners of the truth that they would often like to be considered to be because that way it seems that what you're arguing has an inevitability um, but need commitment, need imagination, need creativity, need support from their friends their partners and others around them to do what is just so difficult which is to make progress in knowledge and understanding. Randall Keynes, in addition to being Darwin's great-great-grandson, is also the grandson of Edgar Adrian, who won the Nobel Prize for Medicine or Physiology, and he's the great-nephew of economist John Maynard Keynes. Quite a family tree. The annual International Consumer Electronics Show, the CES, took place in Vegas earlier this month. ScientificAmerican.com reporter Larry Greenmeyer came back with four brief interviews he conducted with exhibitors at the show. My name's Tim Nixon. I'm OnStar Chief Engineer. And uh, we've been working on the OnStar mobile app now for a number of months leading up to this event. And uh, the whole point of the mobile app is really to extend a lot of the capabilities that are in the Vault today, or that will be in the Vault when it launches uh, later this year, Pull them out of the cockpit, though, and put them in the hands of a customer. We recognize that customers are going to be using the, the vehicle in unique ways compared to a normal gasoline engine vehicle. It's a vehicle that you can plug in. Obviously, it's an electric vehicle with an extended range, so you're going to have a situation potentially where customers are going to want to know, hey, what's my state of charge? I've got to go not just home, but I've got to stop over at my buddy's house on the way home, and it's not, you know, it's not that normal 5- or 10-mile drive, and do I have enough charge? I can use the phone to tell me while I'm sitting in my office or maybe while I'm sitting in my uh, living room at the house, tell me what's going on, right, and get you that extra connectivity. And that was really the whole point of 
bringing the connectivity that OnStar has to the vehicle. We do this every day with our advisors. You can press a button and talk to a person, but we've, we recognize that the people going to be driving the Volt are going to really want to know some additional things that a normal car vehicle customer aren't necessarily going to be, right, they're not going to be thinking about it so much. You have gasoline, you drive it, you fill it up when you need to. Today we're announcing the app to be on iPhone, Motorola, Verizon, Droid, and the um, uh, BlackBerry Storm. And uh, we chose those because those are kind of the prevalent um, smartphone apps that are, or the smartphones that are out there. We recognize that um, there, there may be others that come along. Certainly Google just announced a, a new phone today or just this week. So we, we also recognize that we're going to have to keep an eye on what's going on. But we, we didn't want to go after just one device because we felt that customers are going to be coming, bring, bringing smartphones to this car. Of course, their customers that are out there with their phones are going to bring in, uh, bring those into the dealer showroom and buy a Volt. We want to be able to accommodate uh, more than just one device if we could. There is a demo. It's at OnStarMobileDemo.com. And basically, if you go out there, um, if you have an iPhone, a Droid, or a BlackBerry Storm, when you go out to that site, it'll give you instructions on uh, on how to download the app and, and create a, a native demo app on your phone. It'll be on iTunes, and they can get it on the OnStar site. And then that OnStar site will also direct you to the iTunes store. So there will be a button there. If you go there with an iPhone, it'll direct you to the iTunes site and bring up the app. Melanie Pearson with Liquid Image Co. Really what all of our products are, they're taking a camera and putting it into the product so that your hands are free and you're carrying around one less item. And all of the items, all of the products actually have both video and still image. We had um, everything from snorkel, goggle, to scuba diving and everything from VGA to HD video. But now what we've done is we've added a wide angle lens, 135 degree, as opposed to last year we had 54 degrees. So you get a wider field of view. And then we've also increased the depth to 40 meters, 130 feet. Um, the depth rating, we were working towards deeper depth rating for multiple um, industries, including you know commercial divers and people who, who dive um, on a daily basis that you know, go to deeper levels. Um, but we've added lights and filters somewhat at the request of divers and people who would use that. Um, primarily, though, everything that we do, we do because we want to use it, and we improve it so that it works for us. Swim goggles more of a family fun type product. You know, you're playing in the swimming pool and you want to capture photos and videos, and it's got a cheaper price point, $79. The new diving one will be um, estimated retail of $350, and it should ship around May. The snow goggle, $149. Hi, I'm Michelle Soon from Eton Corporation, and I'm going to tell you about our new product lineup for 2010. We've got uh, an entire emergency preparedness family from American with a co-branding of American Red Cross. The Crip Ray is a self-powered flashlight as well as emergency cell phone charger. So you can just plug in any cell phone into the USB port, crank it. About one minute of crank will do about two minutes of talk time. So it's really for that emergency call. We've got the Blackout Buddy, which is great. It's pretty much a nightlight as well as a flashlight. So you can plug it into your wall, keep it plugged in. When it's nighttime, you can see that when it's dark it will actually illuminate itself it's a night light and then once it's daytime it turns off again and when the power is cut it jumps to life 
um, what you can do is you can actually pull the whole unit out and use it as a flashlight. And fully charged, it will last for about two hours, which is great, you know, for you're in a flat, it's dark, a blackout, it's emergency, you got to get to, you know, your radios or whatever to find out. And the radios have the AM, FM, as well as the weather band. So it's great for, you know, being informed. It's got solar panel as well as hand cranking. It has the internal batteries that stay charged. It also has its own batteries. You can plug in your own batteries as well as a DC adapter that can charge everything up. Brand new for the Eton line, we've got the Scorpion. This is a very cool all-in-one kind of outdoor utility tool. It's got the aluminum carabiner, so you can just clip it on your backpack and go for it. It's got your AM, FM, as well as weather band radio, flashlight with LED lights. All of these, by the way, are LEDs. It's got a fun little bottle opener just because, you know, that's definitely emergency. It also has the, what's really cool about it is it's self-contained because the solar panel, one hour in the sun, it will last for 30 minutes of radio playtime as well as an in, uh, an in, a line in. So you can plug in your iPod and it will actually work as its own speaker. It's got an emergency cell phone charger as well. And that is the same, you know, one minute of crank is about two minutes of speak time. My uh, name is David Furman. Uh, I'm a product marketing manager, and the company's Oregon Scientific. The Green Line is intended to help people uh, monitor their electricity usage, which in turn helps them manage it. Um, and what we use is, first, a, a basic individual appliance manager with an LCD screen. Helps you to see in real time how much energy is being used. Can also account for peak pricing, so you can see what the overall cost is, even if your utility uses peak pricing models. This will be coming in the fall. Um, and uh, I, I think our, our core competency is in wireless transmission and technology. A lot of people know us for weather stations that send temperature and humidity data. Uh, we're really translating that over into energy usage and passing along that same information in an easy-to-use display for people in one location in their home. Uh, the other two items that we have are wireless energy managers. So. They use a wireless sensor plug that you plug into the wall, you plug your appliance into the plug, and then it will wirelessly transmit that information to a monitor or a display that you can put anywhere in your home. And from that, you can see in real time not only costs from one appliance, but up to eight on the advanced wireless manager. Uh, it also has two-way communication, so you can actually set timers for different lamps or places in your home from the display. The aromatherapy line, in particular the uh, ultrasonic aroma diffusers, are uh, intended to you know, set a, a nice uh, a mood, a nice atmosphere, regardless of where you're at. Um, it uses ultrasonic technology, so um, you just add a, a couple drops of aroma oil and water, and it'll start to uh, send out those aromas. Has soothing sounds and color-changing light. Funny story, I we had our first baby in August, and I had an early prototype of this, and I took it into the uh, hospital because you can't take anything with flames right. into the hospital. And uh, we loved it. I mean, it had a nice aroma, not the hospital-y smell, not the hospital-y sounds or, or, uh, or lights, and uh, it worked out really well for us. So you uh, put a couple drops in there with some water, and it will, it will diffuse throughout the water and, and send it out ultrasonically through the top of the, of the product. This will be available this spring. This is the first from us. Uh, there's been other ultrasonic diffusers, but what we're trying to add are a number of 
unique and fun uh, features that make it uh, uh, allow to set an entire environment and not just send out the right aroma, but also the right sights, the right sounds. Uh, also has a nice handy remote so you can uh, use it in your bedside and turn it on and off or set a timer so that the aroma turns off, you know, half hour after you go to bed. You can read Larry Greenmeyer's and Nikhil Swaminathan's coverage of the Consumer Electronics Show at our website. Larry and Nikhil filed reports on netbooks, super safe external hard drives, driverless automobiles, solar-powered Bluetooth devices, and much more. Just go to www.scientificamerican.com and search for CES. We'll roll out the news quiz, totally bogus, in a separate standalone episode coming soon. Till then, check out the January 22nd blog item on how little we're doing to track the kinds of objects that would make the Earth quite a mess if they smashed into us. It's titled, Report Says Scientists Lack Funds to Meet Congressional Goal for Finding Smaller Near-Earth Asteroids. And you'll find that article at www.scientificamerican.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 